Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Classes have started at Pennsylvania state-owned universities. That's the good news. How long they're in session is a different matter because faculty members and coaches could vote to strike in the near future. It's just one of the challenges facing the universities and their students. There are others like state aid that was cut five years ago but has increased the last two years and tuition increases that average over 50% the last 15 years. But there are innovations in the classroom and on campuses too. To address all these issues, many other topics, is Millersville University President John Anderson. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. I always enjoy having, I think the audience does too, when we have an opportunity to talk to our college and university presidents because there's so much that, there is so much to talk about. And a lot of it is looking ahead to the future yeah. of you know, higher education. And because colleges and universities are such uh, anchor institutions in their communities, it tells us a lot about their communities, too. Mm-hmm. So glad to have you here today. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or if you would like to send an email, send it to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, as I look, you know, read through that introduction, uh, it sounded like there were some things that a lot of things that had to do with money. And we'll kind of start <laughs> off there and then go into, into the classroom and outside uh, the classroom. Right. Yeah. But money is a big topic of conversation. Let's start with negotiations going on mm-hmm. right now with faculty members and the coaches. Um, First of all, as a university president, are you involved in that at all? Well, uh, let, let me say this is the first time in my 40-some-odd-year experience that I've been dealing with uh, potential strikes. Okay, so it's a new experience for me. Uh, as far as negotiations, uh, long before the process starts, the and, and the negotiations on the system side are, are organized and coordinated through the office of the chancellor. Uh, and and this time around, uh, the chancellor asked the presidents uh, a long time ago, you know, if if you had the ideal world, what would you want to change in the in the contract? And we provided that feedback, and a lot of it had to do with um, management issues. Of course, the administration would like to have more flexibility in the, in the contract, and uh, of course, the the faculty union would like to uh, make sure there are guarantees in there. So there's always there's always a disagreement. Uh, so then, uh, we we kind of, as presidents on on the ca- local campuses, we kind of step away and let the process uh, take place, and we have very little control over that process in terms of the timing and and whatnot. Um, as the process evolves, um, the the chancellor debriefs us um, along the way, but the information we get is the same information that's put on the system website, so we see what the public sees. Uh, and that's that's how that works. Mm-hmm. First time in your forty-year yeah, career yeah, that that yeah. that's a little bit surprising. Well, well, not if you consider where I come from. Uh, I I spent most of my career in higher education in uh, New York, and in New York, there's a a law that public employees cannot strike. Mm. Uh, so there are unions, uh, and there are contract negotiations. Uh, but there's and there's protest and picketing, uh, but um, public employees in New York can't strike. Mm-hmm. How do you see the current situation? Well, I, I think I think just like in a lot of situations, a lot of um, areas in, in industry, uh, we're all trying to manage costs. Okay, uh, we're trying to 
preserve the mission of the, in, in our case, preserve the mission of the university. And I, I'm a strong believer in public higher education. I'm a product of public higher education. If it wasn't for public higher education, I would not have a, a college degree. Uh, my parents didn't have the resources to send me uh, off to a private school. Uh, so I really only had one choice. Um, and so therefore I'm a, a, a believer in that. The challenge we have is when I went to school and actually in New York where I grew up, up until 1964 or 62, I believe, uh, there was no tuition to attend a public university, okay? And um, uh, Governor Rockefeller at the time uh, believed that a strong public university that was low cost um, uh, fueled the economic engine of the state. Um, times have changed, and across this nation, including Pennsylvania, um, the, the elected officials have decided that um, they can't afford to carry that, that cost burden and have shifted the cost to the student. And uh, now uh, we have two sources of revenue. 75% of our revenue comes from tuition, 25% comes from the state. And as you mentioned in your introduction, um, the state, Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, uh, decided to reduce that funding significantly uh, a few years ago. It was 18 yeah. percent. Yeah. And um, this year and last year, we've seen the first time in seven years uh, you know, increases, not enough to cover our gap in costs, but we're very, um, very thankful to the elected officials and the governor for uh, allowing that to take place in the budget. Uh, but it's still it's still tough to, to keep the the, the uh, revenue and the expense side balanced. Uh, so it is, a, you know, when you're, when you're running that organization, you always have to be careful of that bottom line. Hey, I hope you don't mind me jumping yeah. around because no, no, I just, yeah. uh, there are several topics you brought out there, and yeah. I do want to get back to uh, negotiations. Mm -hmm. But something you mentioned about uh, growing up in New York yeah. where there was new tuition. California had the same thing. Right. There probably were some other states. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie yeah. Sanders, when he was a candidate uh, for president, uh, spoke on your campus. One of, um, actually, one of the rallying cries for his campaign was free college, that there would not be tuition throughout the country. Uh, Hillary Clinton, it became part of the Democratic uh, platform. platform yeah. uh, Hillary Clinton has since, since adopted that, maybe not to the degree that uh, Senator Sanders did. Is that realistic where we are right now? What do you think about it? Well, first of all, conceptually, I love the idea, okay? Conceptually. Uh, <laughs> conceptually. But as one who has to submit a, a, a budget, uh, the question is, where does that revenue go? I mean, I, I can't cut costs to make make up the difference for free college tuition. So s we have to provide revenue to pay the faculty and the staff. Um, so I'm not sure whether their plan on how you generate that revenue or or you know, do you do you defer that to the states? Um, that's the challenge. Okay, so I, I I think there are a lot of challenges with that concept. Um, are that it's really a, a public policy discussion of how much does the public value public higher education, uh, and do they see a value in that? Uh, so I think that's the debate. And then do you do you want to pay for it uh, as a taxpayer? Uh, because there's really like I said, two sources of revenue we have. Um, you know, the, in the private sector where I did work briefly, uh, we depended a lot on donations and philanthropy. Um, where I worked, we had 20% of our, our uh, budget, our revenue side, uh, came from uh, private support. 
and we counted on that. Uh, but there is, you know, a long history of, of doing that with the alumni in the community. Uh, public higher education, we don't have that tradition of philanthropy. So we get what, very, what's your percentage at, in Mooresville? Uh, in terms of philanthropy, well, when you, you know. well the, the, you have to define a little better because we we raised we just did had a great year last year and we raised millions of dollars but 98 percent of that is restricted when a donor wants to to give you money for a building or mm. something like that or a specific scholarship it doesn't go into offsetting the so the the key is trying to raise unrestricted funds and there's a very very small percentage of that uh, at, at most public institutions and okay we'll go back okay. to go, let's go We're, back to the contract negotiations i'm not going to ask specifically about yeah. it since you're not specifically I'm not at the involved table, right. right but what would a strike do to millersville and the other state system uh, schools quite frankly um that's an unknown uh because it's never happened in the system i know there have been uh strike authorization votes uh, over the years, uh, which is, uh, according to what I've been told, common in, in the system. Uh, but from again, from what I've been told and what I can find out, there's never been a strike. So it's, it's unchartered territory for all of us. And uh, quite frankly, we don't know what the impact is going to be. Uh, I, I like to be the optimist. I, I hope that there are rational people at the table, and I know that they're talking on a regular basis. Today there are negotiations, right. by the way. Yeah, just about every week. Um, so uh, the, the fact that there are people at the table still discussing the issues, uh, I'm optimistic that we won't have to have, you know, find out what happens. Would classes continue? Uh, again, um, we will continue classes as long as we can, um, because you know, in reality, when you look at um, strikes, uh, again, we've never experienced it. Um, there, there's consequences on both sides: loss of benefits and salary on on the faculty side, uh, loss of you know classroom opportunity for our students, which is our biggest concern. Um, I don't know if every faculty member will stop coming and teaching their classes. We don't know that, uh, but we will have to. We will continue as long as we can in terms of offering classes uh, to students. So when you say that, um, my first question was, who is in the classroom teaching the students if there is a strike? Yeah. Uh, well, we, we don't have enough people around <laughs> to to fill the classes. That's for sure. Meaning management, uh, right, meaning uh, right. people in the administration. Yeah, or, nor are, are we we have enough qualified people to go in and, and work with the students. So, uh, you know, this is uncharted territory. Would you be in a classroom? Would I be in the classroom? I, you know, I haven't been in the classroom in twenty years, and it's a lot different now. I understand uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't know if I'm prepared to go in there. I don't know if I'd, I'd be assisting the students or hindering them. Um, but you've had to make some preparations, I, I assume, yeah. that uh, yeah. the university has had to make some preparations. Yeah, in case the preparations are more around communications to students. And all right, we're going to move on to some other issues here in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We're talking higher education today with Millersville University President Dr. John Anderson. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I said at the very beginning that we're going to be talking about money uh, before we get on to some of the other the other issues. Uh, tuitions and fees, ProPublica, which is a, um, in, uh, an investigative uh, news media, uh, ProPublica looked at colleges and universities in all 50 states. They found that Millersville tuition increased by 56% from 2000-2001 to 2014-2015. That's the highest in the state system. Why are the tuitions rising at a rate that fast and yeah. it, again i know it's not just millersville yeah it it's um it's a complicated uh issue obviously uh but let me let me begin by saying uh what what's not in that number is how much student financial aid we've increased as well because one of the reasons we'll talk about um our tuition model uh, one of the things we wanted to do was actually level the playing field for all students. We found that students with high financial need that were trying to work one or two part-time jobs were taking few credit hours, and then to stay on track for graduation, they'd have to pay extra during January session or one of our three summer sessions taking summer courses. And um, and so they, they get uh, penalized uh, for trying to earn money so they can uh, work their way through college. Um, so so what's not in there is that we would dramatically increase our financial aid to students. And it's just like, um, in a way, because we're getting less and less state support proportionally to our costs, um, you know, we're that's a sticker price. And so we're giving back a lot of money to those students who have unmet financial need. Um, the, the costs, you know, here, here's a, here are two numbers I'm going to give you. Last year... Um, our costs, and, and this is not to put blame, this is just the reality of what we have to deal with. Uh, last year, our health insurance benefit and, and retirement benefit costs increased last year was $4.2 million. To put that in perspective, at, at our campus, a 3% tuition increase gets you $1.9 million in revenue. So look what we would have to increase tuition to make that cost. So we have to squeeze from all kinds of in all kinds of ways to try to cover those cost increase. So and and that's in, in a lot of a lot of businesses and industries. The healthcare industry is, is another area that um, has high costs. Um, so you know, that's something I can't control as a university president. I just have to deal with. Um, so that's those are the challenges we face. So when we are trying to figure out how can we provide the same quality uh, education for our students, and, and let me tell you, you know, we're talking about faculty negotiations. I have to tell you, we have some of the best faculty I've ever worked with uh, in my forty some odd years in higher education. Uh, so it's 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 a challenge because I you know I see the wonderful job they do. And they're represented by a union that's trying to get the best um, uh, benefits and, and salary they can. And, and quite frankly, that helps us when we recruit faculty. Uh, we had uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 new faculty come on board. They were over my house for lunch the other day. And the provost told me this is, uh, I think, the first time, uh, at least in a long time, where all of our faculty that we hired this year, it, they were our first choices. That doesn't always happen. So we're very competitive in recruiting high-quality faculty, which benefits our students. So uh, we try to make all of that work. 
So many questions. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> I, I could clear my calendar. And I, <laughs> stay all day. If you want. But um, you know, it's probably hard for the public, people outside the university, people who uh, work in higher education, to know. But how do you define? Uh, how do you define a high quality, um, yeah. you know, faculty member, yeah. someone who you say, you know, there's someone or you said our first choice, mm -hmm. there's someone we want. Yep. This almost sounds like you're drafting uh, a sports uh, team. Or something like that. Absolutely. It's um, I don't want to make that analogy to faculty that it's like, you know, you don't, you don't have a fantasy. <laughs> you don't have a fantasy faculty yeah. draft. Well, uh, you know, first of all, the this is in in our in our world. Uh, faculty uh, have a lot of say in terms of who they want as their peers, okay? So when we search and we search for faculty, uh, we try to collect a pool, and, and that's, that's viewed by the faculty in that department, and they, they really narrow that pool down, and they make the recommendations of who to hire. So the faculty and their disciplines know what they're looking for, and in, in some cases, uh, in, in history, for example, they're going to want someone with a certain background. So they, they, they look at candidates in terms of what their research is because we're we're very uh, proactive in our undergraduate research uh, programs. Uh, so they look for the research they've done. They look for teaching excellence. They look for uh, any indicators of their investment in the community, whether it's the university community or the larger community. And all those, primarily those three categories are what uh, faculty look for and when we hire. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, I got an email here uh -huh. uh, from someone who says, I think it would be nice to have someone from the teacher's perspective on the air. Yeah. Let me just say that in two weeks, and I don't have the exact date, we have someone from the union representing uh, the uh, faculty uh, at, the at the Pennsylvania State System. Our conversation today is not just about negotiating a contract. That was part of it. It's uh, a big part of the news right now. So uh, that's why we're not having a debate and we're not going to negotiate on the air. Just letting you know that uh, that will be coming up in, in, a, in a couple weeks. Um, Getting back to recruiting uh, quality, uh, high-quality faculty members, um, I, I don't want to say what difference does it make, but maybe how does a student uh, who is considering Millersville or any other institution mm -hmm. and their families, how do they know the quality of that faculty? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Uh, reputation of programs gets around. Uh, I'll give you a, a perfect example at Millersville, and there are many. I'm just... Like you say, we have a finite amount of time. Um, we have one of the best meteorology programs in the country. Now, yeah. how do how do we know that? Well, we first of all we look at where the students come from. Uh, over over a third of the students, at least last year, I don't know about this year, um, over a third of the students coming into that program are from outside Pennsylvania. They come from California, Florida, uh, because they know the reputation of that program. We, I, by the way, we have the. Third, at least the department chair told me this a while ago, we have the third largest undergraduate meteorology program in the country. Oklahoma University's one, Penn State's two, and we're three. So that word gets out. We promote that. We promote it on our website. Uh, you can look it up. Um, I, when I, I go to the American Meteorological Society convention every year because we hold an alumni reunion. We have so many alums. Uh, in that in that program that uh, work all over the country. What does that conference? What do they talk about? This sounds like a lot oh, of fun. I'll tell you. It, there's literally like five thousand people who go to this, and they have to hold it at a convention center. So it's yeah. days of 
uh, scientific talk. Everybody thinks meteorology. You know, they look at Al Roker on the Today Show, and he's a meteorologist, um, and and that's what they do. That's a small part of you know, broadcasting. It's right, just a small right. option. That's what everyone thinks yeah, of. But yeah, but, it's a but small part of it. Yeah. Really, and being a physicist, I I love talking to the students about their research areas. We have students going all around the country doing undergraduate research, and so it's very scientific in nature. So. Uh, a lot of graduates go and work for firms that that build and design equipment for uh, forecasting. Uh, they work at NOAA. They, I mean, all over the place. Yeah. Um, so, Do you compete with? Does Northville compete? For students with Penn State, oh yeah, and I I, I ask just Penn State just because yeah. of proximity. Yeah, yeah, sure we yeah. do, and we have a lot of our students uh, go on and get doctorates at, at Penn State too, mm-hmm. uh, and and in all programs. So I interrupted you about yeah. you said about reputation. Uh, you know that yes, that certain programs get reputations, but what other ways do uh, uh, do students and their families? Uh, find so out? so here's. A lot of people come to visit us, okay? We get about 10,000 visitors a year through our, our, our admissions center. And um, I always tell visitors and, and, and the, the families and the prospective students, I say, we all have great programs. Some are better than others, and how do you judge that? You judge it by what do the, what do the graduates do? Where's the placement rate? And, the, and, and students now with social media and, and websites and technology, they can find a lot out about a program online. And that's where they go first, we're finding, okay? Uh, then they, they say, okay, we want to go visit the campus. And I always encourage people to visit the campus. And I say, you, you know, you're going to talk to the faculty. You're going to get a sense of how you think you can fit into this program, but also uh, pretend as you're walking around the halls and the sidewalks of our campus, make believe you're a student here. And how does it feel to you? You know, just just for those, you know, hour, just make believe you're a student. Because if you feel comfortable in your learning environment, you absorb so much more. If you're anxious in your learning environment, you don't absorb as much and get as, as much out of that educational experience. And, uh, you know, I think we do an exceptional job, as many institutions do, with that. I think I've even heard you use this term mm. uh, when you've been on before. But I, I, I've heard it often with uh, your colleagues using the term best fit for a, a student. How do you make a student feel comfortable in, in that environment? Well, it, it, everybody from the person at the front desk in a residence hall to the faculty member, okay, um, you have to have a welcoming feeling. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I heard this from a, a grandmother one time who's visiting the camp. She goes, you know, I, I was kind of lost, and um, someone who was working on the grounds actually came up to me and said, excuse me, you look lost. Can I help you? You know, that's the kind of environment that welcoming environment. Our faculty do an exceptional job with the students in terms of getting them engaged. And this, this generation of students, the millennials, as they're referred to, um, we find and research shows that they're really, in their educational experience, they're looking for relevancy. In other words, what I'm learning here, how is it relevant? How is it going to be relevant in my life? And also engagement, uh, because they get the content everywhere, you know, on their smartphone. So they, they want to be engaged with their faculty in the learning process. And we had a wonderful showcase of uh, student engagement and learning um, last spring. We call it Made in Millersville. And it's a showcase of all of our students. We had twice as many students presenting as we did the prior year. 
Uh, and this is uh, poetry, works of art, scientific presentations, uh, over 350 student presentations in one day in our library. It was absolutely fantastic. And that's, we're seeing more and more of that. You know, I and I hear that often is engagement is so important. You've just touched on it, but define that. What, how yeah. how's that actually look? Yeah, it's 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 taking concepts and putting them into context, so so students actually see what's going on. It's uh, so some of. Other terminology now that's used in higher education is called high impact learning experiences. Okay, I like uh, engagement better. But yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we used to call it project based learning, and so uh, taking concepts and and turning it into undergraduate research, living learning communities, uh, internships. We're promoting internships like crazy now, and, and that those are win win situations. We're doing a lot more faculty-led study abroad programs, okay? Um, alternative spring break programs all around the world, uh, mid-semester you know, mid or between-semester programs, January programs. Uh, so that's what we mean by much more engagement outside the traditional classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> you were talking about uh, your experience in higher education and millennials, the yeah. generation. I know there, there are millennials who hate that term, millennials. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but how, what changes have you seen in students over those 40 years? Oh, my gosh. Uh, again, I haven't been in the classroom in some time in, in terms of regular teaching. I'm in the classroom a lot, you know, talking with students, and some faculty ask me to come in and, and present and talk and engage with students. So here, I'll tell you my, the story I, I used to give that example. Uh, I remember uh, going into a quantum mechanics class in undergraduate school, and I had a Czechoslovakian professor with a thick accent. And there was like 10 of us in, in the classroom. And he'd come in with a piece of chalk. We had chalkboards back then. He'd come in and he'd start writing on the chalkboard and talking at the same time. And we would be scrambling whatever he put up on the board and listening and taking notes. And at the end of 50 minutes, he'd be at the other end of the chalkboard and he'd walk out. And we'd be there with all this content on the board that's now in our notebooks. And then we'd go back to our residence hall and we'd try to figure out what was going on because we have assigned problems or whatever. Today, I can go on, on my smartphone, go on YouTube, and I can, I can go and find Nobel laureates giving the same lecture or series of lectures. The best faculty in the country, you know, award-winning faculty uh, giving the same lecture, and I can watch it when I want. I can go back if I didn't understand something. And see it. So all the content is very much accessible now. So now, um, today, faculty, the students are saying, I, I, I get this, you know, I get it. Uh, tell, me, tell me how it works. And so this is called you know, flipping the classroom. You've heard that before. Uh, Carl Wyman, who's a Nobel laureate physicist, uh, created the Carl Wyman Institute out in Washington University, where they actually uh, take college classes and they flip them in, in a kind of a different way. Uh, but there's much more engagement during the class. And the expectation is the content, you know, you're going to get it out on your own. So that's, that's a change that I've seen in a lot of, in a lot of teaching, learning uh, environments. What about the kids personally? The kids personally? Yeah. Um, the, here's the good news, okay? The good news is students really are more concerned, at least from what I see, in the students I work with, in terms of their community. 
okay? I talk to more students, and this is not a scientific analysis. This is anecdotal in, in discussing. But it's an observation. It's an observation. Thank you. Um, I see more students telling me that they, they want to go back and do something good for their community. I think that's wonderful, okay? Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, when I was an undergraduate. I had two job offers when I graduated. I was great to have two job offers. It felt great. Um, one was working in a, for a business, a, a manufacturer of lasers. And the other one was teaching high school physics and at half the salary. And I taught the, 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 took the physics uh, teaching job uh, because I really wanted to work with young adults. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today, uh, which is good news. And we, you know, we, we really promote that. We, I, I talk to students at orientation. I say, you know, we're really fortunate to live in a free society, but to, it takes work to maintain that free society. And it takes people to actually contribute to that, to maintain that, to give back to the community. And I, I see a lot of that in this generation. To give back to the community, though. There are so many ways to do that. Yeah. But what you have observed, in what ways do young people want to give back to the community? I, uh, I, I've talked to students who want to set up foundations to help students that have disabilities. I've talked to students who want to go and be motivational speakers back in their, their neighborhoods and talk to youth to, uh, to give them inspiration and hope. Uh, so there's a lot, there's a whole host of things. Hmm. You, um, you, you mentioned uh, teaching, that that's what, uh, where your career path yeah. took you. Millersville traditionally had a reputation as a, a great teacher's college. In fact, it used to be in the name. Yes, that's right. Millersville yeah. uh, State uh, Teacher's College. Yeah. Uh, does that, uh, and I'm curious because I, I've heard, you know, this is anecdotal, that, and I haven't really seen the research, that there are not as many young people opting for education careers. Uh, correct. So I'm going to give you a brief history, and then I'm going to okay. ask you a All trivial right. question. Okay. Maybe All some right. of your listeners know. Uh, so Millersville was the first normal school in Pennsylvania, 1855. There, Then it grew to be 13 normal schools. So the question for you, Scott, your listeners are, what does that mean? What's a normal school? That was school? my next question for you, <laughs> and I don't right. know because right. well, I was well, going to ask I'll, you. I'll come back and I'll answer that for you. So, <laughs> and then we, we morphed into State Teachers College, um, and that was the mission. And, and that was very common from Massachusetts all up and down the East Coast um, You know, back in the 1800s. Uh, I think I was told the other day Massachusetts, I think, was the first to develop these normal schools. Um, and, and now we have... Um, grown into a con what's called a comprehensive uh, university where we uh, provide we have like a hundred academic programs uh, teaching is still a very very strong program for us teacher education preparation um, it's uh, a very rigorous program but the enrollment has gone down uh, I predict that we're kind of at the bottom of that um, because I meet with superintendents of schools in the Lancaster area every semester. We have breakfast once a semester, and we, we resolve problems together, like uh, the legislation that just got passed um, about uh, substitute teachers and uh, having st students that are in teacher prep programs be eligible to be substitute teachers because there's a shortage. Uh, that came out of a discussion, a breakfast uh, that we had uh, last year and worked with Senator Smucker to get that legislation through. Um, 
so uh, we have a wonderful reputation, but uh, talking to, to the superintendents, um, they're now starting to see a shortage of, of teachers, and it's getting harder for them to hire. So the good news is I think that we'll, we'll see a, um, an up, uptick in enrollment. Um, why, why do you think that enrollment went down? Uh, what I'm told is that um, students were having a hard time getting jobs. Um, what was happening, especially with the uh, not so recent now anymore, the, um, the, the economic recession we went through, um, a lot of teachers stayed working longer. So there were fewer retirements. And, um, and that kind of you know, backlogged the uh, vacancy pool. And uh, it was tough for students to get jobs. Uh, at the graduate level, I, what I'm told, Pennsylvania decided not to pay for graduate coursework, so our enrollment in graduate education programs uh, went down. Uh, but we're starting to see it uh, come back, and and we, we we now introduced a new doctorate in educational leadership. Uh, so our first doctorate at Millersville in the history of Millersville last year, and um, we have a, a lot of enrollment in that. Uh, that is a unique program that focuses on poverty and technology and, and the gap of um, those that live in poverty and you know how do they stay up with the technology and education today. So uh, exciting things going on there, but I think we're going to start seeing uh, an increase again. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Millersville University President Dr. John Anderson. If you have a question about higher education, about Millersville, the future, a lot of topics that we've covered today and plan to cover over the next few minutes, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. You know, I was just thinking of this as I was reading that. Uh, does Millersville, Millersville have a Facebook page? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah I, I figured oh, I, he had to. Scott, I tweet. You do? I, I think I, I follow I'm you on, on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. I, ha- I have a lot of followers. Um, I And, you know, I, I do it to promote the students and, and, and faculty. I, I had the our championship baseball team over That's for right. dinner Monday. Almost all second in the country. Second in the country. Uh, and we found out that the team that beat us had, um, the coach told me, had 18 Division One transfer students on the team. Oh. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, they, you know, in Florida, they play baseball year-round, right, too. Right, So And, and um, we just have a wonderful baseball team. Yeah, and, Millersville, that is another thing. When you talk yeah. about reputations, Millersville has always had a yeah, great baseball team. Yeah, and I love having – we have a lot of students over the house. Uh, I have a, a kind of a policy, and that and I tell the students that uh, anybody who wins a championship gets to have dinner at the, at the president's house. So, you know, we've had uh, not only athletic teams, uh, but our robotics team is a national championship mm-hmm. team. They've won, like, four national championships in the last six years. Um, our our step team, okay, our dance step team won a national championship. They're coming over to dinner, I think, next week. So in addition to a lot of student groups and leadership groups, um, we have championship teams coming. And I'll tell you, it, it's it's a lot of fun having them there. Mm. And so I take photos, and, and um, I tweet them out, and they love it. Okay. Well, we'll have to – see, I asked that question because – Almost everyone is involved yeah. in social media today. How has that changed um, um, education, higher education? You, you know, you see it in the national news, okay? And 
and um, I I teach at something called the New Presidents Academy out in uh, in California during the summer uh, for the American Association of State Colleges and Universities. So I was out there, and so it, I call it the presidential boot camp. So newly appointed presidents around the country, we had 28 this year, um, come to our academy, and uh, we have about five faculty, and it's a, an immersion program for a week. And we talk about this issue, about social media and how it changes the presidency, in addition to how you market and all of that. Um, and the, the, the challenge for, for a president uh, is that it's instantaneous. So uh, in the old days, when there was an issue th- that was emerging or something, you, you could get your team around you and say, okay, you know, what's going on? How do we communicate? And, and you have time to do that. Now, if you don't respond immediately, you're criticized for being, you know, complacent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's it's like you have to be on time. So we literally we have people watching social media things all the time, you know, uh, just to make sure we know what's going on out there in, in that world. I want to kind of get back to something we touched on earlier, and that is how students and their families know what is the best fit for them. Uh, U.S. News and World Report always has put out, I say always, traditionally, they were the first, they were the one that so many people looked at uh, as far as rankings, ratings for schools. I see that Millersville in the Northeast, that Mm. uh, you come in in the top 100, uh, actually, usually about second in the Mm. state system. Um, But what do you think as a college president, and and there are others now that are doing it, uh, but as a college president... Is it a fair way to go for the school, and what can a student learn from those? Yeah, it, is it a fair? Well, we don't have any control over it. They just go get our public data, and um, they rank us. Uh, there, there is a survey that's sent to all the presidents and provosts. I think uh, provost gets the same thing, where we we get to rank our our you know, institutions that we know. Um, that's that's a pretty small. Um, component of the ranking system, though. You know, I always say to my colleagues, I say, you you, um, you really promote that U.S. News World Report ranking when you're doing well, and then you, you have excuses <laughs> why it's not important yeah, when you're not doing yeah. well. We all do yeah, something, we like, all that, do something yeah. like that. Uh, <laughs> now, the, I think the real question is, does it really affect how students look at the university? Um, for us, I'm not so sure, because so many stu- of our students come from Pennsylvania and in our region uh, where we are in the state, and that's pretty common across all of our campuses in, in this particular system. Uh, so I think it's more of uh, the, the local reputation uh, rather than the U.S. News World Report. I, I've never talked to a parent or a prospective student who says, I came here because you were ranked high. Not once. Not once. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or I'm not coming here because you're not ranked high enough. Um, so I think the local reputation probably is is uh, is something that uh, people consider more than you. In our case, U.S. News World Report. From what I see, you have when I say you, meaning Millersville, a high percentage, very high percentage of your students are from Pennsylvania, yes. and a very high percentage of your students stay in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. afterwards, yeah. which is good news. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I don't know if I know why. Um, I think it's because uh, of our reputation. But it, in some ways, uh, I look at the fact that we're not 
uh, getting students from out of Pennsylvania is, is something to work on, and actually we have worked on it. So we were the lowest percentage of, of out-of-state students in the, in the system. At, I think it was less than 5%. The system average is around 10%. Um, out-of-state students bring a richness in, in, in their experiences. Um, you know, quite frankly, they pay more tuition as well. Uh, so we've focused on getting more out-of-state students. And this incoming class and transfer class, um, about 1,900 students total, uh, 10% are coming from out-of-state. Uh, so we think that's good um, because it's good for the economy as well. Uh, you can talk, you get someone from a tourism board here, and they'll talk about how they want to bring people into their community to spend money. Well, the more people we can bring from outside the Commonwealth to spend their money in the Commonwealth at hotels and restaurants when they come here and buying, buying things, uh, I think that's good for the economy. And a lot of students stay when they graduate near where they went to undergraduate school. Uh, so uh, we, we like to think of um, this as kind of economic development for the Commonwealth as well when we recruit from out of state and internationally. Let's uh, take some phone calls. Sure. Greg is in Millersville. Greg, you're on the air. Yes, well, thank you. Um, yes, I'd like to ask a question to the president. Uh, I'm a, my wife and I are conservationists, and we, we don't see any conservation of energy going on at the university. Uh, uh, with the dorms went up, the new dorms, I, we don't see solar panels. Oh, we, yeah. we, don't, we, don't, we don't see very much of anything to conserve composting. Uh, our water pressure has gone down dramatically since the dorms went up, and mm. we wonder if there's any water-saving uh, devices in the showers, in the dormitories. Uh, where's the composting? Where's the recycling? Yeah. So, so and, and there's very, there, there seems like they like to build more and more parking lots, and all the green spaces are disappearing. So that's my question to the president. All right. Thank you. Greg, thank you very much for your call. Greg, I, I appreciate that. So uh, because we are doing quite a bit, and I'd love to give you a tour sometime, just call my office and we'll set up the time. Uh, we do compost all of our food. Okay, we have uh, an organization that picks up all of our food waste and we compost that. Uh, we've built a couple of organic uh, gardens on campus uh, that were student-led. Um, uh, uh, in terms of our, and, and you may not know this, but uh, probably in early next year, we're going to break ground on our first net zero energy building. Uh, this will be our new welcome center, uh, Sam and Dina Lombardo Welcome Center. Uh, it will be. Uh, it'll have a. It'll also serve as a, a learning center. Um, when our visitors come and they're waiting for, to go out on tour on campus, there'll be an interactive uh, video displays that will show how the building is producing electricity through solar panels, uh, both PV and passive solar uh, to preheat domestic hot water. Uh, they can see on dashboards, on video screens of how that's being done, and also how the energy is being consumed. Um, we're also in that building, we're demonstrating stormwater uh, runoff conservation. And, and again, that'll be an educational opportunity. So we're going to invite K through 12 classes to come in and see how that works. Um, the, the new residence halls uh, were a public-private project designed long before I got here. But just to let you know, I, I have served on the executive committee of the American Presidents and Universities uh, Climate Commitment, and we signed that, and we have a goal of going uh, carbon neutral. Uh, we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions over the years uh, per square footage. Uh, th there's so much going on. Um, I, can, I can go on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that has to we, be a priority we, today, I would think. And yeah. I say today, meaning today yeah, and yeah. in the future. Yeah, we re 
recycle uh, everything on campus. I, so I can go on and on. I'm sorry that, that uh, you don't observe that or see it, and uh, I'd love to take you on a tour sometime. All right. Let's take a phone call from Doug in Fairfield. Doug, I think I hung up on you before by mistake, so I'm glad you called back. That's all right, Scott. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I'd like to ask the president how he feels about two situations. One, uh, teachers not going into the profession, perhaps because schools are now hiring two part-time teachers for one position, uh, which hurts continuity. It also hurts the ability to pay back student loans. And secondarily, how he feels about the content of the classroom uh, when a teacher writes uh, uh, the plan or if, if the the lesson is videographed. It does not belong to the teacher. It belongs to the school system, and they can then later play it again as a distance learning situation, uh, which provides the opportunity for not hiring another teacher. How does he feel about that? those situations in relation to going into the teaching profession? Hey, Doug, thank you very much for your call. Okay, so I, I think he's referring, I'll, I'll assume he's referring to university. Um, you know, in our in our contract, we have a cap of how many part-time teachers we can use. Uh, so that's governed by a, a contract, so we can't exceed that. Um, Is we, that part of the negotiations? Do you know? Uh, I know adjuncts I, are. Yeah, I... I don't think that is. Okay. I'm not, I, I don't know. I one of the things, and again, we're not yeah, getting back yeah. into, you're not going to negotiate this right on the air, but that uh, one of the proposals was that adjuncts would take a 20% pay cut. Yeah. So, all right, go ahead. With no, his, so, with we, so we have a cap, so we can't exceed that, and, and therefore we have a, a significant uh, number of our faculty or full-time faculty. Um, you know, some institutions have very high percentages of part-time. We, you know, we don't compare to uh, national average, uh, and that, again, that's controlled by the contract. In terms of, um, uh, I, I don't know if I thoroughly understand the second part of the question, but in terms of uh, uh, online education and proprietary material or or, or whatever. Uh, faculty, we have a lot of full-time tenured faculty teaching online. Uh, so whether they're online or in the class, uh, it doesn't really matter in terms of that. Um, course materials are, are typically, um, you know, if, if there's a bibliography that's out there, that's in the public domain. Uh, course notes and materials are the faculty members, um, but all our syllabi are are uh, in the public domain in terms of uh, what the objectives are and what the assignments are. I think one of the things he was referring to is if a faculty member uh, taught an online class or something that was uh, on video yeah. and it was used semesters, years after that, uh, whether that faculty member is compensated for that. Yeah, I, and and I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know what that policy is. Um, but I can get back to you on that. Okay. All right. Let's take another call from Tom and Edders. Tom, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Uh, you know, my degree doesn't say <clears throat> normal school. It says Millersville State College. Oh, okay. <laughs> One of the oldies. Hi there. How are you? Uh, I've, I've got a friend whose daughter is a freshman over there this year. Okay. And the big deal with them is this new housing situation. Uh huh. The fact that housing costs have gone up so much, yeah. and it's it's now a third party that runs the housing for the college. Um, uh, I'd just like you to discuss yeah. how how this came about. Yeah. Why you think kids need these fancy fancy dorms, yeah. the suites, and uh, yeah. open living areas and kitchens available. Yeah. I'll yeah. take my answer off the air. All thank right. You very thank much. you very much, Tom. 
Yeah, Tom, well, uh, congratulations on being an alum of Millersville. Uh, I run into many of them. Uh, so the third party doesn't run the residence halls. We run the residence halls. So that's one thing I want to clarify. Uh, the project uh, was developed uh, through something called the public-private relationship with our affiliate organization, uh, Student Services Incorporated. Uh, this is a common model. Um, our residence halls, uh, getting back to the other part of the question, our residence halls uh, had not have not been renovated for since they were built. Um, we I have a residence hall right next to where I live that was built in 1948. Uh, and it's it's a good solid building. Uh, the challenge is uh, we we are in a in a in a uh, in a experience where we have to compete with students, and you know it's uh, some 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 four of us students. Refer, you mean. Yeah, four students. Yeah. Some of us refer to this as the arms race. Okay, if if uh, Shippensburg builds all new residence halls and they look nice, and and we have we have students uh, we're showing them 1948 hall style residence halls where. A lot of students uh, share the same bathroom. Um, guess what? <laughs> They're going off to Shippensburg, uh, which, by the way, is a fine institution. Um, so th that's just the reality of the world we live in. The very it, And now it's a very competitive world. Back when I was going to school, it was tough to get into a school because there were just so many baby boomers. Uh, so now, we, you know, quite frankly, we have to compete. However, on this design, public-private partnership, uh, there is no state tax dollar support going into these residence halls. Uh, the um, private entity finances it. We lease the buildings back from them. After the uh, bond is paid off, we inherit the buildings. Uh, but we run them. Uh, the staff, our staff is in there. The resident assistants, the residence hall coordinators, directors are in there. And the design actually is to um, improve what we call living learning communities. So we're developing a lot of living learning communities in the residence halls. That's why we have um, uh, lounge spaces and, and meeting rooms because we want to get a lot of learning taking place in the residence hall. We only have about uh, two minutes sure. left, and I yeah. definitely want to give an opportunity to talk about the future of higher yeah. education. But along those same lines, when you talk about an arms race, it seems that every college campus that I see, there are new buildings going up, not mm -hmm. just dorms, yeah. but new buildings. Is that part of the arms race, that students want that, that students have to have those new buildings, and if you can restrict that to like 30 seconds. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if they have to have them. Uh, we're very conscientious, with, and a lot of our construction is uh, rehabbing and maybe putting an addition on, and we try to respond to where the demands are in terms of academic programs and providing enough space, and that's a challenge because sometimes programs get very popular and all of a sudden you have to provide more facilities for them. Uh, so it's, it's an ongoing challenge. But who pays for that? I mean, is that part of tuition? Yeah, it's part of our debt service. Uh, so, and our debt service is very low. We're about 5%, I believe. Um, so it's it's part of um, keeping up uh, with, and a lot of things you don't see. Like we did a $12 million project to replace all of our electrical underground wiring, okay, but that was a safety issue. We only have about 45 seconds left. Okay. And uh, Dr. Anderson, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, but here's the big question. Oh, normal school. We have to answer Okay, what? real quick. Okay, normal schools were uh, to prepare people to teach the normal curriculum. So everybody had a normal curriculum, included Latin and math, just kind of like the Common Core. Okay. <laughs> See, I learned something today. About uh, 20 seconds or so, yeah. future of higher education. Oh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a whirlwind. Um, 
I think technology is driving how we uh, present our programs and where we can do it, the modality of how we uh, teach now and learn. Um, I think there will always be a need for a traditional on-campus residential experience. That will always be there. Dr. John Anderson, President of Millersville University, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about pain management and pain management other than using opioids. I mean, we've heard so much about opioids in the the last few uh, years or so. We're going to be talking about pain management without those pills.